honouring your parents. One of the few facts I remember from school history lessons was that there was a time in England when a person could be hung for the crime of impersonating a Chelsea pensioner. In fact, following a bit of research on the internet, I discovered that by 1815 in England, not Scotland, I hasten to add, there were 288 crimes which carried the death penalty, such as stealing five shillings from a shop, or 40 shillings from a house, obviously a better bet, stealing from a shipwreck, pilfering from a naval dockyard, damaging Westminster Bridge, or cutting down a young tree. Thankfully, the record shows that the number of people hung for these offences was relatively small. And even more thankfully, these laws were repealed. So that today you'll be glad to know your life is no longer at risk should you decide to impersonate a Chelsea pensioner. Now, these laws, known as the Bloody Code, were promulgated by the landowning class in England to protect their property in a society where there was no police force. Nonetheless, I doubt if any of us here would support such draconian measures. And even those who support the death penalty today would restrict it to the most serious of crimes, premeditated murder. Around three and a half thousand years ago, a legal code was instituted for a nation recently emancipated from slavery and en route for a promised land. If you take this book, the Bible, seriously, this set of laws was given to them not by a group of legislators but directly from God himself mediated through Moses, their leader. The nation of Israel was to be a theocracy a nation ruled by God governed by God's laws and among these laws which you'll find mostly in the Old Testament part of the Bible in the books of Exodus and Leviticus are certain crimes which carry the death penalty not surprisingly, as we would expect, premeditated murder is among these crimes. But there are other offences which carry the death penalty, which I think will surprise you if you've never read the Bible. And perhaps the most unexpected capital crime of all is this. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. And whereas compensation must be paid to a person who attacks another person, an attack upon your parents is a different matter altogether. Exodus 21.15 Anyone who attacks his father or mother must be put to death. Even persistent rebellious behaviour by a child merits the same punishment. Deuteronomy 21 If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge this evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Now, I don't plan to deal with this subject this evening of capital punishment. When we come to the next commandment, of this in preacher, though I can't promise this, may well deal with it next week. Mike Parker, we're looking forward to that. Nor am I proposing, for reasons that we've already discussed in this series, and if you're interested, you can log on to the internet or get a copy of the tapes, that the civil law given to Israel should be instituted in any society today, for which some of the children here are no doubt thankful. No, in all seriousness, the reason I mention this 
is that these laws highlight the utmost seriousness with which the law of Israel, which is the law of the Lord, treats the breaking of the fifth of the Ten Commandments. It is on a par with murder. And the reason we are so surprised by this is because of the low estimation in which our society today holds parents and families. Breaking the fifth commandment is a serious matter. I would suggest to you if we were to devise ten commandments, the most important things as far as God is concerned, I doubt if number five would even make the top ten at all. And yet, after our first four commandments, as we've seen, which focus on our relationship with God, the first of the remaining six commandments, which focus on our relationship with one another, deals with what I've called a matter of family honour. So let's look first of all about the commandment itself and what it actually says. Exodus 20, verse 12. If you need a Bible, in fact there are Bibles around in the pews and it may help because we'll be looking at various things as we go along. This is what the commandment actually says. Let's give heed to what God's word says. Honour your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. When Moses repeats these commandments at the end of his life in his farewell speech recorded at the end of Deuteronomy, he repeats the commandments and there's a slightly uh, different wording in the second part. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 5.16. Honour your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Slightly different, but the thrust is the same. Now, the key word here is the word honour. The Hebrew word for honour is connected with the sense of heaviness or being weighty. Uh, in his book, Pattern for Life, which is probably the most exhaustive I've read of many books on the Ten Commandments, Norman Shield comments that the word, the Hebrew word kabad, always emphasises that the one honoured is accorded considerable personal dignity and given the appropriate measure of respect. Uh, some of this idea carries over into English, does it not? someone might say to you you don't give me an ounce of respect same kind of idea the corresponding Greek word that interesting we looked at this morning talking about prophets without honour in Mark's gospel focuses more on the value of the thing itself or the person those persons who are most highly valued those who carry the most weight are to be our parents honour your father and mother that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you now this command, unlike the other five which follow it, is not a negative. You know the others? Don't do this, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. This is positive, not negative. And unlike the others, it contains a promise of long life and prosperity to those who keep it. And of course, by inference, a warning to those who break it and dishonour their parents who fail to treat them with respect. Now if I were to pause here, which I will do, and do a brief survey of those who are present who are still with us and are following. I'm fairly sure that a good number of you are already thinking of exceptional reasons why this commandment does not apply today and does not apply to you. In Britain, by the time children reach the age of 16, one in four of them would have experienced the divorce of their parents. Four out of ten children are now born outside of marriage. People living on their own now represent more than a quarter of all households. The figures are rising. So there has been a breakdown of family life in the West. An increasing number of people have little experience of what it means to grow up in a family with a father and a mother. And what experience many people have may well be negative, ranging from neglect to abuse. 
The result is, as Stuart Briscoe writes in his book on the Ten Commandments, playing by the rules, we no longer honour parents. Instead, many people lie on a counsellor's couch and blame our parents. We don't concentrate on what they did right, but on what they did wrong. Now, I don't want to minimise either the pain that some of us may have suffered and still feel as a result of our parental experience, or the value of professional counselling. However, it's important that we don't start with the problems. It's vital that we don't literally throw out the baby with the bathwater by abandoning the family as an outmoded institution. Just because a child thinks two and two makes five doesn't mean you give up on maths, you just seek to apply it more accurately. Prevention is better than cure. So then, in the time available to us, and we can only touch on some of the many issues relating to this commandment, let me begin where everything begins. Where does everything begin? Right at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning, in the book of Genesis. And let's look first of all then at the family that God planned. As some of you may recall, because I conducted your services looking around this congregation, the marriage service begins with a reminder that marriage is not a human idea, but a divine institution given by God for the welfare of society. When God created the woman to complement the man and said, in the words of Genesis 2.24, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. But not only is marriage not a human invention, but a divine institution, the family is also not a human invention, but a divine institution. In fact, the institution of marriage in Genesis 2 is preceded by the institution of the family in Genesis 1. You may like to look this up, but it's on the screen. In Genesis 1, 26-28, we read of the family that God instituted. Then God said, at the culmination of all creation, God said, Let us make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them, said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Here is God's design. In the beginning, Adam and Eve, a man and a woman, given the gift of procreation, of producing children. But the fifth commandment reminds us that this is not just something biological, as with the animal kingdom, between a man and a woman, but it is relational between a father and mother and their children. Parents, are to nurture, protect, teach and discipline their children while children in response are to keep the commandment by honouring their parents, obeying them, treating them with respect. Now while not everyone gets married, everyone has parents. That's how you came into the world, is it not? And in turn, these children, as the institution of marriage reminds us, leave their parents eventually and form their own families by, in our society anyway, falling in love with someone else, marrying that person, they have children, and in turn they have children. So the family is the God-ordained building block for society. This is so obvious that it's hardly worth saying, but I say it because we can assume it so easily. Again, Norman Shields writes of the fifth commandment, it strongly affirms the sanctity of the family as the basic social unit of human life and as that on which the stability of society itself depends. Uh, the promise in the command that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you is not a blanket promise to individuals, it's probably a promise to a society that maintains this, like Israel, that they continue on from generation to generation. Now, this biblical emphasis on the family raises enormous challenges to our society today. 
I don't have time to talk about them, but in your coffee between this and the Origin Praise Night, how about talking to the person next to you about things like surrogate mothers, sperm donation, designer babies, cloning, and so-called gay marriage. All of them are affected by what you believe about marriage. All right, Write one down each and discuss them in the coffee break afterwards. On a serious note, if we are thinking Christians, these kind of things challenge us enormously if we take the Bible seriously as God's word. However, before we move on from this, notice something else about the family that's not so easily grasped and some of you are all looking glazed and it is very hot, I realise that's been a long day, uh, but I think this is probably the main reason why the family is so important in God's eyes, so try and stay with me if you can. God planned the family not just for the welfare of human society, but also to show something about his nature and character. All that God created tells you something about the kind of God he is. Just think, Psalm 19, David says. What does he say? The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, when you look at the sky, it tells you something about the God who made it. But there is something about human beings that says something that nothing else in all creation says. Something greater and deeper about the nature of God, for human beings alone, we read, are created in the image of God. And that image of God, I would suggest to you, is not just seen in us individually, the kind of people we are, able to relate to God, but how we relate to one another. We reflect the image of God, not just as individuals, but how we relate to one another. So did you notice in the account in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our own image. The word for God in Hebrew is plural, but most scholars think this expresses what's called the plurality in the Godhead, that God is not just one, he is three persons in one. That's why we sang at the beginning, Father, we love you, glorify your name. Jesus, the Son, we love you, glorify your name. Spirit, we love you, glorify your name or his name, because the role of the Spirit is to glorify the Son. And so that plurality of persons is expressed in male and female, who are blessed and told to be fruitful and increase in number. They're created in the image of God. So are relationships. How you relate to one another, and especially how you relate in families, says something about the very nature of God. Because God is one in three persons in one, and relates harmoniously. We don't have time to look into the whole subject of the, of the Son uh, submitting to the Father, and the Spirit speaking of Christ and not himself, that there is a harmony within the Godhead. There's no rivalry. There's no inferiority. They all function perfectly as a unit. Now, the family is meant to do exactly the same thing. Children and parents. And this is the primary way God does this. In which human beings show God's image are that of children to parents. And as we honour them, <coughs> we respect their authority. We live in harmony with them, and so we exemplify something of what God is like in that perfect harmony within the Godhead. Now, this is not an easy point to understand, all right? But just, I just ask you to think about it, because it's very important. We show something of what God is like. Let me give you one other piece of evidence that I've never noticed myself, although I have read the Bible once or twice in the past, previous to this. The biblical word that most expresses what God is like is the word holy, H-O-L-Y. So in Leviticus 19, the Lord tells Moses, listen carefully, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I am holy. And then there's a list of 
holy character which will tell you what God is like. Now, most of you probably didn't learn Leviticus 19 in your navigators group or, 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 or your verses. What examples do you think will follow? Here's the very next verse. Okay, here's the first look. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel. Say to them, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's the very first thing God then says. Each of you must respect his mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Now, isn't that interesting? Isn't that significant? The priority is given to the two commandments out of the ten, which most people, and even most Christians, think are the least relevant of all. Yet keeping the fifth and fourth commandments are two of the main ways in which we show what God is like. So human beings, made in the image of God, are to reflect his likeness, not least in our relationships. As we honour our parents, so we honour and glorify, and the two words honour and glorify are closely related, by showing what he is like. That is one, if not the main reason, why God placed us in families. But there is a problem. For the Bible doesn't end at the end of Genesis 2, as probably most of you do know that. So notice not only the family God planned, but what I would call, so you can remember these things which preachers do, the children God chose. If you've been around churches long enough with Christians, and when they get to my age, one of the great problems is nostalgia. You know, you look back and say things were great when I was growing up, but really the church has gone down the drain ever since then, you know. And we look back to times when things were really good and great. And this applies sometimes to what we say about family life. But I want to tell you the real truth is there has never been a happy family in human history. Or there was a happy couple called Adam and Eve in paradise. But before any children came along, they rebelled against God seeking to break away from his authority. Their children never experienced paradise. But they did inherit their parents' sinful nature. And the result was, what happened? Well, you know the story. There was an immediate breakdown, not only in the vertical relationship with God, but the horizontal relationships with one another. The very first family in history ended up with the older brother murdering his younger brother. Not exactly a great start to family life, was it? And things didn't get better. This is a kind of part of history of the Old Testament. Uh, but the generations that followed, it culminates in a world that was full of violence. Genesis 6, and God finally judged the world by flood. Genesis 7 to 8. Yet, rather than giving up on human beings and families, and God said, let's start again with a new pattern, God called a man named Abraham and his family, promising to make him a great nation, and he said, Abraham, through you I'm going to bless all families on earth. It's in Genesis 12. Yet, if you look at that family, Abraham's family, they were by no means a happy family. Take, for example, Abraham's grandson, Jacob by name. He was the younger of twin brothers, growing up in a divided family where his father favoured his older brother and his mother favoured him because he was a mummy's boy and his older brother was an outdoor type. Red and hairy, Esau. Cheating and deception meant he had to escape for his life because his brother threatened to murder him for doing this. Many years later, he returned home with his family which composed of four different women who produced twelve sons. The twelve sons of Jacob. And you think, this guy's going to really learn from the bad experience he had and establish a really good family. What does Jacob do? He favours one son over all the rest. You know the story, Jacob. Joseph and the amazing technical dream coat, which probably wasn't enough, I'm all into that. He repeated, as so often happens in families, what happens is we repeat the mistakes of the generations time after time. And what happened? His brothers threatened to murder him. What happens? 
despite all this, God preserves this family out of his grace. And these 12 children, these 12 sons, become the founding fathers of the nation of Israel, the ones to whom God gave these Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai through Moses. They are the children of Israel. No wonder they were called children. Because they constantly behave like children, like rebellious and wayward children, who turned away from God their father and disobeyed his laws. This began immediately after the Ten Commandments were given. In fact, while Moses was giving the commandments, they turned against God. It continued for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness. They finally came to the promised land. Constantly the prophets called them back because they disobeyed God's laws. And the Lord eventually decided that rather than having them misrepresent his character by the way they behaved with one another, he would remove them from the land he had given them and sent them off into exile. The northern kingdom to Assyria, the southern kingdom to Babylon eventually. So these are the family of God. These are the children he chose. These are the kind of people that God works with. Now, let me simply say at this point, this should be a great encouragement to us. Because they're people like you and me, aren't they? God works with people who are by nature rebels. Part of our sinful nature is that we rebel, especially against authority. Why do children not get on with their parents? Well, there are all sorts of reasons. But primarily, it's a power struggle against authority of any kind. Uh, and the Bible says this, this finds its ultimate when things go completely awry. If you read uh, what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says one of the marks of the last times is that people are disobedient to children. If you read Romans 1, the Apostle Paul says one of the marks is that people hate their parents. And despite all this, God remains faithful to his promises and fulfills his plans. Now, it may be an encouragement, but it should never be an incentive for carelessness or complacency, especially because if this evening, as many of us here do, we claim to be Christians, we belong not to the nation of Israel, but the Church of Christ. You see, God's plan for the family didn't find its final fulfillment in the children he chose, the people of Israel. No, something better was needed for which the patriarchs longed and the prophets promised. Notice finally then, thirdly, the son God sent. And again, we all know this story, but think about it from this perspective. If, like me, you've lived in India uh, and, and know anything about Hinduism, for example, you'll find that the gods appear among men in Hindu mythology. They always appear, well, nearly always, anyhow, I mean, exaggerating, they appear fully grown. Jesus grew up as a tiny baby, born in a human family, dependent on Mary, his mother, and Joseph, who acted as his father in loco parentis. But at the same time, Jesus was also in a different relationship with his heavenly father. Now, I don't have time to think this through completely, but it's a very important and significant thing. Let's just take an example. There's only one story we know about the boyhood of Jesus. There's all sorts of myths and stupid things that people wrote years later, which is absolute nonsense. But the only actual story we have about Jesus is when he was about 12 years old. It's recorded in, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 42 to 52. And it demonstrates this point that Jesus lived in two family relationships, if you can call it that. And at the age of 12, his parents took him up from his home in Nazareth, took him to Jerusalem for the great feast of the Passover. On the journey home, they discovered he was missing. They thought he was with some other relatives, and so in their anxiety, they went back to Jerusalem and searched everywhere for their son. 
Imagine the, the horror of looking for this 12-year-old boy in this great city. And eventually they found him, the scriptures tell us, in the temple court, sitting with the teachers of religious law. And naturally they're concerned. And Mary says to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Now the question here is, has Jesus broken the fifth, fifth commandment? Is he dishonouring his parents? The answer Jesus gives shows that his relationship with his heavenly Father must always take precedence. You know what he said? Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my Father's house? Nonetheless, he doesn't then say, and goodbye to you, Joseph and Mary, or that's the last time having to do with you. No, immediately after this in Luke 2.51, Luke concludes by saying, then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Throughout his earthly life, Jesus continues in these two relationships. His human relationship, his divine relationship with his parents, family, with his heavenly Father. And he shows by his relationship to his parents that he keeps the fifth commandment. Again, we don't have time to look at it, but you may remember the story where Jesus castigates the Pharisees for trying to get round the fifth commandment by a special religious pleading and not providing for their parents. And he says, woe to you! Yet he doesn't allow his obligation to his family to swerve him from doing God's will. You may remember the story in the Gospels. Remember the story where his parents, where his mother and brothers came to him to take him away because they thought he was mad? And Jesus said to them, no, no. I'm about my father's business. Who is my father and mother and brother and sister? He who does the will of my father who is in heaven. But at the same time, he also perfectly obeys his father in heaven in all that he does. He demonstrates what we talked about before, that perfect harmony within the persons of the Godhead, of relationship. So the son, if you read the gospel accounts, particularly John's gospel, willingly submits to the father, he says, I only do what the Father tells me. I always seek to glorify my Father. I always obey my Father. He even obeys him to death on the cross. As he agonizes in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And yet, even hanging on the cross, some of his final words remind us he has not forgotten the fifth commandment as he looks down and sees his mother and entrusts her into the care of John the beloved disciple and says, John, here is your mother. Mother, here is your son. Now, as in all things, the Lord Jesus Christ is our role model in respect of our relationships with our earthly parents, and if we're Christians, with our Father in heaven. Like Jesus, through him, we enter into a new relationship in which, in which we experience what it means to become the children of God. If you're a Christian, you're in two families. You're a child of God, but you're also a child of your parents. In our relationship with our Father. In that relationship, our desire should always be to do what the Father wants us to do. To do what pleases Him. Paul writing to the church in Ephesus says, Live as children of the light, and he says, Find out what pleases the Lord. Ephesians 5, 8 to 10. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're enabled to do what pleases the Lord. That's very interesting if you've got time when you go home again. Look at Ephesians from chapter 5 onwards, and you'll see this thing develop. What is it that pleases the Lord? To keep his commandments. 
So a few sentences later in this letter in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul tells him, go on being filled with the Spirit. Sounds great, doesn't it? Go on being filled with the Spirit. Fantastic. And then, what does he do? Immediately, he lists areas of human relationship where spirit-filled behaviour is seen in action. First in marriage, between husbands and wives. And then in families, between children and parents. In our human relationship. Look what he says in Ephesians 6. About children. Children, he says, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. And then on the other hand, he speaks to parents, particularly fathers, and says you must act in a way that does not deter your children from giving you honour, but teaches them to obey the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. So, we are to honour and obey our parents, and the only exception is where they may ask us to do something which conflicts with what our Heavenly Father has revealed to us in His Word. Then and only then, in a parallel context, we have to say what the Apostles said when they were told by the Sanhedrin to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, we must obey God rather than men. But apart from this, there are many, many other areas and ways in which we can and should honour our parents. For this commandment is not just a negative one, don't do this. It's a positive one. This is what you are to do. And let me say one other thing about it before we come to my conclusion. It's the only commandment that doesn't last a lifetime. For you can only obey it while your parents are still alive. Believe me, and I take many funerals. Don't wait until the funeral before you give the eulogy. Maybe some of us need to go home and write a letter to our parents. Thank them for certain things. Or there may be many things that we're not happy with. But there are surely things that we can be grateful for, most of us anyway. So obey the fifth commandment while you can. Now I've almost finished, but I've got two questions to ask you at the end. They're personal questions. Right? First of all, I ask you this question. Do you have a father? Maybe that's a bad question for some of us. Maybe you had a bad father. No father at all. And that question may seem painful or irrelevant. But, the New Testament does not say that God is like a father. Rather, it says, our earthly fathers are at best pale imitations of the perfect father in heaven. The father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting verse in Ephesians again. Ephesians 3. Paul says, I kneel before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. So interesting, the word Greek for Father is pater. It says, I kneel before the pater from whom the whole pateria in heaven and on earth derives its name. There's something about families that take their name from God as Father. And when you turn from your sin, maybe you're not a Christian this evening, and you don't know what it means to know God as your Heavenly Father. Here's this wonderful thing. When you turn from your sin, you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only forgives your sin, He not only assures you of a future in heaven, but here's the most wonderful thing of all, at least in this life. He puts His Holy Spirit within you, who witnesses with your spirit that you belong to Him and that you're His child. The Apostle Paul, Romans 8 says, 
For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, unless you are God's child, you will never understand that verse. Why? Because you can only understand it in experience. It's God's spirit witnessing with your spirit that you're a child of God. Maybe you're not a Christian. Here's the wonderful thing. If you turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ and God puts his spirit within you and you go out of here and say, I've got a father who loves me. A perfect father. Maybe your father was a bad father. He is everything your father maybe wasn't. Maybe you had an excellent and good father like I have. But this father is the perfect father of whom even the best father is but a pale imitation. And when you do this, it just changes your perspective because you begin to understand what true fatherhood is like and what fathers and mothers and families should be like. And only then can you put your own families and fathers into perspective and begin to deal with the hurts and experience the healing love of God the Father. And only then, and our society needs this desperately, only then can we begin to build families as God intended them. Families of people who also belong to the family of God. That leads to my second and really final question, which is this. Do you have a family? Many of us maybe have the privilege of growing up in a good family. Or the inestimable privilege of growing up in a Christian family, as I had. Many of us have the gift, not the right, of being married. The gift and not the right of having children. But whether or not that is the case, there is a wider family you discover when you come to know God as your Heavenly Father, when you turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus Christ, He puts His Spirit within you, you discover this incredible thing that wherever you go in the world, there are people who belong to the same family. My father told me that when he was in the Second World War, he was posted to all sorts of remote parts of the world, to India, to Malaysia, to Singapore, even to the north of Scotland, to the Hebrides. And he said in his particular unit, people were just absolutely amazed. He said, within a few days of wherever he moved, he was going out to lunch with someone he'd never met before. And they said, well, how come, you know, you know somebody in Hebrides, and you know somebody in Singapore, and so you're going out to lunch this Sunday with somebody from Malaysia. Where did you meet them? No, I've never met them before. Well, how did it happen? We belong to the same family. The family of God. Just scattered all over the world. It's an incredibly wonderful thing we take for granted. There's a wider family of God. There are millions of people all over the world who belong to the family of God who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God has arranged it that these families meet geographically together in smaller groupings. And we call them churches. Local churches. This church is not this building. This church is the people who happen to meet in this building because it's a convenient place for us all to get to. If they burnt it down, it wouldn't stop Charlotte Chapel existing. Gatherings of people from all sorts of backgrounds who worship the same Father and Lord. God's family in the local church. So again in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says, to these Gentiles who at one time were excluded from God's covenant and from God's people Israel. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household. And I want to say that local churches, I don't idealise local churches, local churches should be places where everyone, regardless of whether you're married, single, divorced, whatever category you come into, 
can find acceptance and love and care and support. Now this is not easy for one good reason. Churches are made up of people like me and you. So, you can stay outside and wait for the perfect church or you can join a local family of God's people and seek to make it the kind of family that God intends that reflects his character the kind of family that our hurting and broken society really needs there's a challenge do you have a father? do you have a family? or you can say yes to both those things